title here, The Chapter Goddess. I am a mom, author, blogger, freelancer, podcaster, producer, and overall creative. With this show, I really want to focus on creatives and bring their authentic self to life. How are they motivated to pursue their passion? What have been the struggles along the way? Does self-care play an important role in who they are today and how they connect with the creative flow? Bringing one's authentic self to the forefront is important in this world that we live in currently. Sharing your self-care, your tips, and how you stay on track for things without losing it completely is also important. Self-care is not talked about enough, and authenticity and self-care are what I like to highlight with my creatives, as well as getting to know them. So get ready for a fun and entertaining show. Hit the like button, subscribe if you haven't already, and let's get ready to meet this episode's guest. Hey guys, and thank you for joining us on this day of, crazy day of the week. At least it has been for me. It's hot here in Oklahoma, and I feel like my brain is just shorting out. But I guess also that comes hand in hand with parenthood and like it is what it is. But I am excited for today's guest. He's been on several shows with me with Go Indy Now. And now I get to pick his brain about his novels and his latest release. So let's get ready to meet this fantastic author and let him tell us about himself and his books. Hey, hey. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for coming on the show. I know there's a huge time difference between us, so it's like dark there, right? <laughs> As you, I mean, to be fair, it's Scotland, so it's dark most of the time. It's a bit like Mordor, but um, yeah. <laughs> it's not too late tonight. It's sort of 10 p.m. It's fine. It's okay. uh, that's the time I'm about to go to sleep, and here comes my gremlin. But go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about you and your books. Yeah, so as I said, my, my name is uh, Lindsay Kinsella, and I am both a, a science fiction and now, as of June, a fantasy author now too. Um, and yeah, I've, I've always uh, written books that are sort of related to my, my, my passion of, of paleontology and prehistory and dinosaurs and such. Um, and so yeah, that's that's the subject material that I like to write with. Um, and this is my newest release. This is The Heart of Pangea. And uh, yeah, we'll have a wee... We'll have a chat about that. And I was talking with him before, guys, that I love that it's a hardcover. I've got his first novel here, The Lazarus Taxa. I still have not got to read it yet, but it is on the list. My son, I was telling him yesterday, I was like, yeah, I get to interview somebody that writes about dinosaurs. And he's like, I want to see their book. And I was like, I don't think it's kid appropriate, but we can look at it. So <laughs> you have a reader for when he's older well the the new one is or well the new one kind of is how how old is your little one he's five so no no probably not <laughs> like, we, like we gotta start with the early words first so you know <laughs> but let's dive in and talk about this new book how does it tie together with the first book um it doesn't at all Ooh. um 
it's, it's actually it's it's funny uh, you probably despite having similar subject material and the fact that you know i sort of tie it in with with prehistory and paleontology um i probably couldn't have written two more different books i tried um this is this is really sort of writing what was not quite a wrong but I, I took a bit of a left turn while i was writing the lazarus taxa and it was intended to be a book that you know a younger reader could read and i intended to be something that you know my kids could read my oldest is 11 and i thought something could read and you know the realistic setting meant that by the time i was finished it was a violent gory horrific bloodbath of a book and it was not suitable for my children to read um so yeah the new book sort of rectifies that and it's this sort of quirky fun fantasy setting so that i could you know bring to life these you know dinosaurs and other sort of prehistoric animals but in a setting that didn't need to be super realistic and didn't need to have sort of gratuitous violence in places to to fit with the theme it, it could be a, a bit cleaner that way um and so yeah I'm, I'm quite pleased with with how it's turned out even if i'm now marketing myself to a very different audience already only on my second book Feel like the audience changes with everything we like as authors right anyway because there's always like some kind of tweak in there that makes it appeal to a different one and joe is hanging out with us he says two of my favorite peeps how all how you all doing i almost said y'all that's just making it short can't stay long but i will catch this later thanks for joining us joe thanks joe so what has pulled you to write about the dinosaurs I think for a long time there was a sort of um, almost a frustration, I think, that, that popular media kind of ignored what was this sort of hugely interesting portion of science, you know. Yeah. There was sort of a almost a science renaissance in terms of like space physics and whatnot and, you know, big budget movies being, you know, bringing themselves up to date with physics. You know, we had things like gravity and interstellar. Um, and, and paleontology was sort of left to languish in the 90s with, you know, basically no advances since the original Jurassic Park. And I just, I wanted to write something that rectified that because the last, what, 30 years of paleontology has, has just, has, has grown so much. There's so much we know now that we didn't before. Oh, and, and, and I think that other people would find it cool too. Yeah, no, I have to agree. I've kind of my interest in it has peaked too. And part of that is because of my son. Um, he's, I don't know, I guess my, because my father, he worked in a museum for a little bit. He got to see all the behind the scenes stuff and they had a huge acrocanthosaurus skeleton, well, not the actual skeleton, but model of it in the main part. And he got to go see it even during like when the world was shut down because he worked there, we get to have like access to it and stuff. But he's kind of grown up with that. And he's got to see this whole world of paleontology stuff that didn't exist when like we were young. And it's <laughs> kind of pulled my interest. And there's so many things that have been discovered. So yeah, and you kind of feel like that with your kids too. Yeah, there is, there's sort of a running joke amongst the, the sort of paleontology enthusiast people that there are the two stages in your life when you know the most about dinosaurs is when you're eight and then when your kid's eight. Um, and it's true, <laughs> it's true. Um, but I think it's it's almost it's almost me that's the bigger kid with it. You know, someone, you know, maybe when my son will ask a question about dinosaurs and I'm like, oh, sit down. <laughs> yes, 
Yes. So out of the two books so far, do you have a favorite? I don't know if I should have a favorite, but I think, <laughs> I, think I do, actually. I think they're very different, which makes it difficult to choose between them. I think if I'd wrote two similar books and one was just better quality because it's my second book and I'd sort of mm -hmm. like to think I've figured it out a little more, maybe easier to choose. But I, I think it, it probably still is The Heart of Pangea. I feel like it's a book that says more, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's, yeah. it's a book that has a bit more of a point to it. It's, you know, um, The Lazarus Acts is fun, and I love writing that book. Um, but it's quite pulp fiction if we're honest. Yeah. Um, which is, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but yeah, I think the heart of Bungie is maybe a little more deep, a little mm. deeper than, than before. Um, or more pretentious, I suppose that depends what your perspective is. Ooh. In writing the story, did you notice that you went about it differently than you did the first book? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that was due to the fact that it was a different genre and a different age rating that I was aiming for. So that changed yeah. a lot. But a lot of it was just sort of lessons learned from first time around to um, I found it planned out a lot more this time. Um, not, not necessarily in any great detail, but um, I, I at least knew roughly where I wanted the story to end up when I started writing it, which is something I didn't first time around. I mean, the Lazarus Acts, I think I rewrote the final third of that book about six or seven times because I, I, I couldn't make up my mind on how that book should end. Yeah. This time around, I, I kind of knew, you know, there was there were still rewrites and tweaks all over the place, but it maintained broadly the outline that I wanted it to. It just sort of grew in complexity as it, as it redrafted it. So compared, I'm, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about the marketing stuff. Tell me the differences between the audiences and what you've done so far to market this new one. I, I have to say, I found, I thought marketing the second book would be much easier because <laughs> I have an existing reader base. Yeah. Um, that's very much not been the case. It's been much harder to market the second book. And I think it's because really, I, I like to think that the book is sort of emotionally complex enough that adults can read it. Mm -hmm. but the target market is quite obviously, you know, um, sort of older kids, sort of 10 and up, I would say. Um, and yeah, those you can't really market directly to those readers, at least not yeah. ethically. There's, a, there's an ethical question over advertising directly to 10-year-olds. So you then have to sort of appeal to parents, I guess. Um, and yeah. I'm still getting the hang of that. It's very different. It's very new to me. Yeah, I totally get that. But I'm also that parent that's like, oh, I think my son will like this. And like, I have, I feel like I've kind of created a monster with him because he's like, oh, yeah. He looks at the cover and it's like, I want to read that. And I'm yeah. like, oh, this sounds good. Let's get it for you. And like, he's already becoming a book hoarder, I guess you could say. Like, anytime <laughs> we go somewhere and there's books, if mommy looks, he has to look too. And I'm just like, oh no, daddy's going to be so bad. <laughs> we come back with a stack of books. But that it is hard to appeal to the parents, kind of, because you almost have to get those that have like that browsing history looking for dinosaur books for their kids or like in that genre, big up area. 
So yeah, is 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 tricky, and I'd be lying if I said I had it figured out. Because um, yeah, I mean, I think about the books that 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 my kids buy. I, I, I try to sort of think, you know, how where do they find out about their books? And um, yeah, well, typical eleven-year-old, you're like, you know, why do you want this book? Where did you hear about it? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. And I'm like, ah, yeah. <laughs> And I definitely think with the cover you did on that, which let me pull this graphic up again I've got of it the cover you've got on that is very appealing it's going to be eye-catching especially for those younger readers because that's <clears> like <throat> I mentioned my son was like oh I like the cover like I don't care what the book is about because I'm like you got to figure out what the book is about before you just grab it because <laughs> you may not even like it but I like some of the blurbs you've got for them too which I grabbed I used both of these that you sent for me from the Lazarus Taxa and the Heart of Pangea because it's just, they're awesome. Like, um, for those who are just listening, natural history teaches us much. And the case of the, I'm totally going to butcher this. So, Lindsay, how do you say that dinosaur name? <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you laugh, but there's a good chance I'll butcher it as well. Um, Therizinosaurus is, I think, the correct pronunciation. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that sounds more legit than what I would have tried to say. Um, shows us things aren't always as they seem. And apparent predator could transpire to be an herbivore, an enemy could turn out to be a friend, and an alley could in fact be a traitor. So I love that blurb for that. And it's just me and dinosaur names don't get along. I just like butcher the crap out of them and I can't help it. Like I try. If they've got that um, little in parentheses, like how to say it, I it helps, but I don't yeah. remember it when I see the word again later on. I'm just like, no, oh. I, so we, we had this. Um, I was on a, it was, it was a natural history podcast. It was over last week or a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we, we were sort of backstage before it went live. And, and they said, we're, we're going to, I was I sort of said to them, I'm, I'm, I want to talk about this particular animal. Um, but I've only ever seen it written down. And I don't know if this is how you pronounce it. <laughs> we, all, we all went away and looked up the pronunciation before we went live with it. So. That's a good <laughs> idea, though, to do that. And, like, especially with those words. But that feel, makes me feel better that, like, history buffs still have to check out words, pronunciations, too. Because that's, you know, I mean, we're authors, but, like, we still have way, things, places we need to learn and expand on. We're not perfect because we're human. So. Well, that's it. And, I mean, a lot of this, like, because, like, like I sort of said, half the reason that drove me to, to writing this sort of subject material is that most of it doesn't really exist in popular material, uh, popular yeah. media. So, yeah, for the most part, you read these names just on paper as words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some, sometimes you don't really know how it's pronounced. Yeah. So would you say you kind of write more for yourself and not so much for marketing? Because I know there's a lot of authors that write to market and you can see a difference in that writing. Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. Um, whether that's a good thing or not, I, I couldn't say because I think, you know, it, it then comes to, you know, this point where I'm after writing the book and I'm like, how do I market this now? Um, yeah, I, I just, I write a story that I would like to read a story that I like to tell. Yeah. Um, something that seems a good idea. And, and then I sort of worry about what the reader base looks like later. Um, yeah. yeah, probably not a smart business decision, I will admit. <laughs> but for, I think from a mental health standpoint, it's a 
good decision, which speaking of mental health, how do you keep your sanity when it comes to having to write all the time? You're also a parent too. Do you have any tips and tricks that you'd like to share on how you practice your personal self-care? Um, to, to be honest, the, I'm sort of in a this sort of strange situation, but I think the writing actually is my self-care. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I've got I've got three kids. I work full time as a as a naval architect. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite a lot in itself. That's quite busy, um, and it's quite being being an architect is quite sort of rigid. You have rules, and you do maths, and you have to you know stick within regulations and standards. And it's there's not a lot of creative freedom in that particular role. So I think you know the writing is my outlet there, and that's that's my escape from all the responsibilities of the rest of life so yeah i don't i never feel like there's pressure with the writing and you know it helps being you know an indie author there aren't any deadlines there isn't a publisher chasing me for the next book it's it's out when it's out it's ready when it's ready and um yeah it, it just that's my that's my downtime yes that is one thing i'm very thankful that I chose to be an indie author for you get to set your own timelines and like as a parent too I I suck at deadlines sometimes (laughs) because part of it is nothing ever goes according to plan something some kind of kink always comes up in the schedule and like today I I never miss appointments and I straight up forgot that I had an eye appointment today because I've been going and doing so much just with my son. And I was, I called him and I was like, I am so sorry. But like <laughs> as an author, an indie author, you get, you have time. Like you don't have to push yourself, push yourself until you're like in this huge rut where you feel like you're in a giant hole. So. Yeah, I think that's, I think because, because for me, the writing is predominantly a hobby. You know, I don't want to put that sort of, I don't want to suddenly have pressure associated with it, you know? Um, and yeah, like you say, I think parenthood is the biggest thing that, that, you know, sort of adds to that pressure if you have a deadline there, because yeah. it's a very good example. I mean, my, my youngest is, is 11 months old. Um, he's he's currently going through a severe sleep regression. Every chance you'll hear him, he's only just up there. He's not oh, sleeping. It should be. Yes. Um, and yeah, he's been sort of up all night, and I don't think I have written a word for about a month. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if if I had a publisher breathing down my neck, that would be really stressful. I'd be like, ah, I'm not writing. Um, yeah. But I'm not. So, you know, if that adds a month on or a couple of months on at the end of the line, you know, so be it. That's that's what it needs to be. So it's nice to have that kind of freedom and, and that flexibility. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So with this second book out, <clears throat> you in writing, are you working on a third book? Yes, I am. Um, I, I seem to sort of flip flop quite dramatically in terms of tone, and uh, well, not so. I've, I've, I've written this sort of family-friendly fantasy, oh yeah, kind of epic. Um, and the next book has sort of gone completely the other way, and it's a sort of dark, kind of near future. It's almost a horror. Yes. Um, which I'm really excited about. But yeah, again, completely different market once again. So in about a year's time, I'm going to have to figure out how to market to a whole new bunch of people. Um, yeah. Which is, um, but yeah, I, I think I kind of, 
it's almost like writer's ADHD. Like I finish one book and I'm like, right, that's great, but I want to do something completely different now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's the first time I've I've gone, I've set, you know, a book in the deep past. I've set a book in a sort of fantasy world. Um, in this sort of near future setting, I find quite interesting. Um, and it's sort of set on a on an illegal whaling ship which gets stranded in the Arctic. Um, and I think I like the idea of doing a very character-driven book. I think my, my first two books have been the Lazarus Tax on Morsel was very much a plot-driven book. Okay. Um, I think the Heart of Pangea sort of sits in the middle. Um, so yeah, I, I like that this book gives me the opportunity to be like very character-driven. It's quite a limited plot in terms of what happens over the course of the story. It's more about how people react and how they got there. Um, so yeah, interesting. Um, who knows how long it will take? It depends when my son starts sleeping. So. It does play a huge part in like the, how productive parents are is when their children don't sleep. Oh, um, with like changing genres, do you feel like it helps your creativity when you do that? When you switch from writing in one area to another one? I think so, and I, th I think I get I get like a little itch in the back of my brain when I'm writing one book. That's like you're something something totally different. You could do though, um, and the. I, I never give in to that while I'm writing. I'm quite a completionist too, so I have to finish a book. But it does mean by the time I finish, I am sort of chomping to to, to write something entirely different. And yeah, that would, like I say, it's, it's hard to know if this new book will, will fall into sci-fi or horror by the time it comes out. But if it does, that's basically three books in three different genres, which, yeah, again, probably not a great business decision. But I think creatively, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's about writing what I want to write. Yeah. If you could share a piece of advice to an author who's kind of just started their journey or getting ready to start their journey, what would you offer them? Um, that very much suggests that I have a clue what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the, the, the best advice is that, um, particularly for a new author, maybe you finish a first draft. I think we've all been there where we read our first draft and it's really disheartening because yes. it sucks. Um, and yeah, I think the best advice is that it's, it's okay. It's okay that it sucks, it will, but that's fine. It's supposed to. Yeah. Um, and just not to kind of lose heart because I think that's where a lot of people, or at least what I hear, that's where a lot of people sort of give up. So definitely don't give up. I like that because it is the first draft is pretty rough for everybody. Like if you have a perfect first draft, I don't know what the heck you were doing, but like you had to have edited like super crazy like along the way. And I wouldn't even consider that your first draft. So I think what's more likely is that you just haven't recognized what's wrong with it. So I think um, take it as a good sign if you think your first draft sucks because it means you recognize yes. that it could be better. So with the second book out, a third book in the works, what is something you've learned in the process between these two books that made a huge difference for your writing career or huge difference for your writing career? I'm getting tongue tied. Blah. <laughs> I, I think the biggest difference I made um, second time around is that I really sort of doubled down on beta readers. Um, you know, Lazarus, I had a few. Mm -hmm. um, this one, I, I can't actually remember how many I had. I had a lot, um, <clears throat> and that was 
like in, in terms of that sort of you know tidying up process that refinement at the end that made a huge difference and i think they, they, they all had some really really valuable input yeah um when it comes to beta readers where do you go to to find them do you post in your group or so i've, I've traditionally sort of you know you, you have sort of groups on facebook that, that have um Oh, yeah. basically dedicated for for beta readers um what I, what i do find is that i tend to once once i have some I'll, I'll tend to stick to them as well as i can it's good once you know that there's someone who firstly that you trust i guess um there's, there's always that little bit of a risk that you, you know you hand someone over your manuscript that you'll find it published before you let it out um, but also just people who sort of opinion that you value and, and people who provide good feedback. So, um, yeah, I think I've, I've built a reasonably good network of beta readers now. Um, and the hope is that you don't have to sort of scope out over the internet as much anymore. But it's difficult to get to that stage. Yeah, for real. Um, do you have an idea of how you're going to do things different with the third book compared to what you've done Um with the first two, if that makes sense. <clears throat> In terms of the sort of writing process. Um, yeah, writing process. And I mean, the marketing kind of, you explained that um, it, in, in itself, since it's a whole different genre, that that's a whole, like you've got to take a new avenue there. But Yeah, um, I, I sort of feel like I, I might have nailed what the process is. I think with the second book, I felt like I, I landed upon a process that really works for me. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just a case of refining that. Mm -hmm. But there's every chance that I get halfway through and find that I want to change something. So, you know, I, at, at two books in, I'm, I'm still sort of learning, I think. Um, so we don't have it all figured out. Yeah, no, I, as an author, I feel like you never stop learning. There's always something changing, always a new technique or something you can pick up and along the way to utilize and whatnot. What are some of the places you go to to expand your writing knowledge? Um, it sounds sort of cliched, but I think it's just kind of reading. I find that's a really boring answer and so many people say that, but I think it's true. Um, I think that's where you get sort of more sort of inspiration and, you know, that that's where you see. I think once you're an author, you read slightly differently. Oh yeah. You know, you, you start to notice like little quirks and, and you notice, you know, how, how certain authors write dialogue, yeah. for example. And you can't um, unsee stuff either. Like if you yeah. come across it, you're like, oh man, like yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it's it almost ruins it a little. It almost ruins reading just a little. Um and, and yeah, just, just seeing how other authors use even just something simple like, you know, chapter lengths or you know, how they space the paragraphs, you know, little things, you start to pick up on these little things when you're reading. Um, yeah. Which makes me sound really boring. Might, might be fair. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, it's not super boring because you get to really explore some books that have like great world building. That's one of my things. I like to see how a different authors build their worlds and especially when it comes to fantasy because everybody sees differently. And then you've got those that want to follow like rigid guidelines for their world or common tropes. I'm like, yeah, you don't have to do that. Like 
your story is your story. You get to do what you want, take it wherever you want. It's your creation. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I quite like to, I think quite often when it comes to sort of tropes and taking sort of either either plot or world building inspiration from, from other books, um, it tends to be more a case of, I, I like to sort of invert the tropes. So I may, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read something, you know, even something that will be very traditional fantasy. And I think I've seen that before quite yeah. a few times. So I'm going to go and do the opposite of that because I think that would be interesting to see. I love to do that. That's one of my fun, like favorite things to do is like do the opposite, especially when it comes to super uh, well-known tropes. I'm like, nope, we're going to go this way and take it and just warp it and just see see how it comes out. So Yeah, and I think that's what I quite liked. Obviously, the, the, the heart of Pangea is set in a sort of fantasy world, but it's a fantasy world which exists within a young girl's imagination, um, which sort of gives you a blank check to do just whatever stupid nonsense comes out of your head, um, which is what I did. Um, which is quite freeing because you know you're you're not stuck to rigid tropes anymore. Um, it can be whatever you want it to be because it's inherently not real. Um, that was a nice. I think that was that was nice coming from the Lazarus taxa into that. Mm-hmm. The world building for the Lazarus taxa was just research. You know, it it was set in the late Cretaceous, a real-time period in a real place that actually existed, you know, mm-hmm. 70 million years ago. There wasn't a lot of freedom with that world building. Um, so to go from that to anything goes, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the world building on this one. Yes. So you mentioned the young girl. Let's talk more about the characters in The Heart of Pangea. Let, tell me more about them. Yes, so er, I I suppose we sort of have two main protagonists, although arguably one. I'll get I'll get to that. Yeah. Um so Robin is a twelve year old girl. She is our main protagonist. And she's sort of sort of a bit of a social outcast, kind of awkward, doesn't have a lot of friends. Um very small family, you know, she's got like parents and, and that's kind of that quite kind of insular. Um so she's got quite a small world that she lives in and so that's that's why she sort of creates this huge expansive world of of Pangea um but also because she has very limited you know sort of friends and mm-hmm. um, she's created herself an imaginary friend um who is this this chap here this chap this is Ed yeah um but what I think was quite an interesting device is that it's, the, the book is told in the first perspective uh, the first person from the perspective of ed who is imaginary and so it's sort of it's almost like it's robin's perspective yeah but it's got a twist on it because ed is sort of like the opposite of her personality he's everything that she wishes she was you know he's sort of brave and he's funny and he's confident um and, and so you get this sort of inversion of how she sees the world oh does it end up changing her like how she sees the world as the story progresses yeah i think i'll, I'll her, the her character arc is primarily about her learning to not need it anymore oh. um 
That's like a coming of age. Spoil too much. Coming <laughs> of age. Oh my gosh, that makes my heart hurt. So, <laughs> oh, but I feel like that kind of like, as a person who's who had an invisible friend as a child, it was a fairy. Um, it's kind of like you you lose a little bit of your innocence or a part of your childhood when you stop believing in them. So that that hurts my heart just a little bit, but I get it. Like that happens to pretty much all of us. And ah, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that sort of bittersweet thing because on the one hand, you know, it is Robin's best friend. You know, she's she's effectively her only friend. Um, but at the same time, he's sort of a crutch. You know, um, she sort of leans on him to to overcome all of her own kind of anxieties and, you know, so it's, it's a sort of bittersweet growth. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Lindsay, <laughs> we are coming up on the end of our time. So go ahead and tell our viewers and listeners where they can grab a copy of this wonderful book and where they can follow you on socials. Uh, yep, so The Heart of Pangea and The Lazarus Axa, if you're interested in more bloodshed. Um, they are both available on most of the usual online places that you'll buy books. So Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, all, all those places. Um, if you want a hardback, and I are talking about hardback, um, unfortunately they're only available on Amazon. Um, or you can email me directly at lindsaycancellabooks at gmail.com. I will quite happily send out a signed copy. Unfortunately, shipping to the States is quite pricey. Um, but the actual book, I sell cheaper than anywhere online. So, it's all about that. And as for socials, I'm primarily on Facebook. It's just lindsaycancella-author. You also find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Still quite useless with those, but I'm learning. Yes. We all have a, a social that we favor. So that's, it's just the thing, but thank you so much for coming on the show today and hanging out. And for you guys watching, hit the like button, share this video and share these books with your friends. And until next time, guys, keep, join the group, my Facebook, my readers group, Lindsay posts quite often. He's got some fun stuff that he puts up in there and Keep up to date with everything that goes on, other interviews by signing up to my newsletter. But other than that, guys, see you later. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to hit that like button and subscribe to get future notifications when shows come out. Also, be sure to check out my website. I have a blog featuring this creative with some other fun and interesting questions. You can also subscribe to my newsletter there to stay up to date with all things The Chapter Goddess and Madeline Dale. Once again, thanks for watching and have a great rest of the day.